0: Hello and welcome to the Scholar Circle, ScholarCircle.org. I'm Maria Armudian. In the laws of war, countries do have a right to defend themselves. But what do those laws require in the process of waging war? And how does this apply to Israel's war in Gaza? Doug Becker explores.
1: I'm Doug Becker.
0: Since the October
1: 7th Hamas attacks against Israel, Israel's response has been military, military targeting of Gaza, military targeting in the West Bank against what they're calling military positions of, of Hamas. But the destruction of civilian areas has been brutal, has been extensive, in some areas, particularly in Gaza, nearly complete. This is a war that's waged by an occupier against an occupied population under the guise, ostensibly, to secure, ensure the security of the occupier. Ever since the 1967 Six Days War, the UN other legal entities have recognized these territories as occupied, And we often refer to them as the occupied territories. And so on this week's show, we're gonna explore the legality. What are the legal obligations of occupation? What is the legal obligations of the occupier towards the population living in these occupied territories? Can they use force? What are the requirements placed on the use of force? And what about the length and the expectation of the eventual withdrawal from those territories? Are they colonies? Or if not, what exactly are They Legally? Our panel today is John Quigley, he's Professor of Law Emeritus at Ohio State University and the author of numerous works including The Statehood of Palestine, International Law in the Middle East Conflict, and The Six Days War in Israeli Self-Defense, Questioning the Legal Basis for Preventative War. And Steven Zunas, he's Professor of Politics and International Studies at the University of San Francisco. He's authored numerous works as well, including Tinderbox, U.S. Middle East Policy and the Roots of Terrorism, and Western Sahara, War, Nationalism, and Conflict Irresolution. He's co-authored that with Jacob Mundy. Thank you both very, very much for joining us. And John Quigley, I'll ask you the first question. I set the whole thing up as the laws of occupation. What exactly does international law, legal instruments say about the obligations of an occupier when they occupy land
2: there's a body of law that has developed that applies to the situation of an army that goes into foreign territory the technical term for it is belligerent occupation belligerent coming from the latin word for for war so it just means a war a, a war related a control of territory Uh, For example, when the United States went into Iraq in 2003, uh, it became the belligerent occupation. It it displaced the government. So it, it was acting in the stead of the government of Iraq for at least the first two years that it was there. It accepted the fact that it was a belligerent occupant. The law was formulated for the first time in 1907, in a treaty that was generated at The Hague. The treaty is called The Hague Convention on Land Warfare. It has a set of rules called The the Hague Regulations. And Article 43 sets out the basic obligation, namely that the occupant is in the stead of the government that was displaced uh, and has obligations to the population Essentially, that it's supposed to keep things as they were, to enforce the laws that were in effect when it came in. It's not supposed to make up new rules for the population, and it is supposed to preserve things as they, they were. This regulation was adopted actually only in French. Uh, so if you see the document in English, it's not quite accurate. In French, the obligation is, is to preserve a lordre et la vie publique, which essentially means preserve the life of the population. That's you know why this is so important in, in the situation in Gaza where where the army of Israel is, is taking some rather you know violent action against the population. So, so though it, it has to cope with The fact that its legal obligation is to preserve the life of the population.
1: And uh, John, I want to follow up the idea of preserving that condition. Is there an expectation with respect to population transfers, population movements, that if an occupier is occupying land, that there's not going to be a significant number of residents of the occupier moving in? Because that would fundamentally alter the way the territory has been governed, correct?
2: Exactly. Yeah. Part of that obligation is that you don't bring your own people in to become permanent settlers there, and you don't force the existing population out, (laughs) which is an issue now with regard to Gaza.
1: That whole notion of ethnic cleansing, uh, a term that dates a bit more to the 1990s, but The concept dates back to this period. Steven Zunas, I want to bring you into the conversation because, I mean, you've written extensively about Palestine, but your your research has been primarily in another area of occupation. That's Morocco's occupation of Western Sahara. First of all, could you describe your understanding of some of these legal obligations and how that's played itself out in that context?
3: Well, the... uh... Western Sahara has been recognized as a foreign belligerent occupation uh, in a number of UN General Assembly resolutions. And uh, former Secretary General Ban Ki moon uh, referred to it uh, as as occupied uh, territory. uh, But it's been primarily put forward in legal grounds as an incomplete uh, decolonization. That uh, Western Sahara, formerly known as Spanish Sahara, instead of being given the option of independence, was essentially gobbled up by. Uh, Morocco, with the uh, support of the uh, United States, uh, uh, France, and, and Spain, it is therefore the largest non-self-governing territory, which is basically a fancy word for colony. <laughs> and um, non-self-governing uh, territories, you know, have the right of um, of self-determination. That's a longstanding principle of international law. Uh, they can choose to remain part of the colonial power, as the Puerto Ricans have. And some of the uh, French uh, Caribbean islands have, the North Mariana Islands, uh, another U.S. Uh, territory. But they need to be offered the, the option of independence. And um, the Moroccans have refused to, uh, to do that. In fact, the United States, under the final uh, weeks of the Trump administration, became the uh, first uh, country to formally recognize Morocco's illegal annexation, followed by, by Israel uh, last year. And uh, speaking of Israel, the United States, I should mention, is also the only country that has formally recognized Israel's illegal annexation of the Golan region of, of Syria, which it seized in 1967. It, the um, United Nations in, in, um, has made very clear that the expansion of, of territory by military force is illegitimate. Uh, indeed, it puts the United States in kind of an awkward position when we quite correctly say that Russia's annexation of Crimea and the Donbas are illegal uh, as they certainly are, but then we end up supporting our allies when they they do the same thing that uh, Russia is doing. That's an important piece about uh, occupation here is that it's seen as a temporary measure. It has to have a, a military expediency, something you know, that's uh, supposed to be you a know, short-term strategic imperative. And that the assumption is there would be a withdrawal uh, by the occupying power and return to uh, self-governance as um, as soon as possible. And, of course, in the case of both Western Sahara and, and the West Bank, the um, occupying uh, power has been colonizing the territories. This is why this is why the Israeli settlements are illegal. Morocco even more so. The uh, uh, colonizers are now um, outnumber the indigenous uh, Western Saharan population by more than three to one. Uh, in part because nearly half of the Western Terran population, like the Palestinian population, are refugees. The other thing I would try to want to emphasize here is that an occupation is not simply, uh, that doesn't mean you necessarily have physically control of every inch of territory. So, for example, though the Palestine Authority, you know, has administrative control over some of the urban areas of the West Bank, The fact that the Israelis effectively surround these uh, urban areas. Uh, You can't go from one Palestinian town to another without going through a series of of checkpoints. They control what goes in and out, that they have the right to militarily intervene uh, without the permission of the Palestine authority. Ramallah and Nablus and Bethlehem and and Hebron are, are still very much occupied territories, and so has the Gaza Strip, because even though Israeli troops finally pulled out of Gaza, In 2004, uh, the fact that Israel has controlled land crossings in the sea and air, and and again, what goes in and out, the Gaza Strip has still been uh, been occupied uh, territory as well.
1: And to follow that up, you said the annexation then would be illegal, but if the population, the indigenous population chooses to join, that would be legal. That's typically accomplished through a referendum.
3: The uh, United Nations has repeatedly called for a referendum on the uh, fate of Western Sahara, uh, but the uh, Moroccan government has um, refused to uh, allow it to go forward. uh, There's many years of negotiations. Indeed, former U.S. Secretary of State James Baker spent uh, many years as UN special envoy. They thought they'd hammered out an agreement in terms of the voter rolls, but the Moroccans balked at that, and the um, instead proposed this so-called autonomy agreement, which is not only uh, rather dubious in terms of how much autonomy it would actually give, but it would rule out the option of independence. And uh, again, the people of Western Sahara chose uh, to be autonomous under Moroccan sovereignty. Again, that, that would be an act of self-determination, but it's not considered an act of self-determination uh, if, there, if independence is, is off the table, which of course is the uh, uh, Moroccan position you know, backed by the United States.
1: So, John, then the understanding here, first of all, is there an understanding that occupations have a limited time frame, that they're expected to end, except in circumstances where there would be some sort of a referendum or some sort of political movement where the occupied population chooses to join the occupier?
2: I think in the law of war, the expectation is that the occupation uh, would and with some kind of a peace arrangement, a peace treaty, or a withdrawal, just as in Iraq, the United States eventually kind of ceded control to an indigenous group and said, We are no longer the occupants.
1: But the expectation then would be I mean, there'd be a peace agreement, but there's always an expectation that. At the end of the day, there should be some form of a negotiated settlement that, that would resolve this, whether it's annexation, new independence, withdrawal from the occupation, decolonization, or or whatever, correct?
2: Well, that it would be agreed between the occupant and the sovereign.
1: You listen to Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. I'm Doug Becker. We're discussing the legal framework, what are the laws of occupation, and its application to Israel's occupation of the Palestinian-occupied territories, as well as Morocco's occupation in Western Sahara. Our guests today are John Quigley of Ohio State University and Stephen Zunas of the University of San Francisco. Uh, John, I want to follow this up. There's going to be a unique scenario here where the Israelis are obviously launching these attacks. Under the, the principle that their own security has been compromised because certainly not just the October 7th attacks, but it, broadly because of you know threats from terrorism, is this the idea that an occupier is demanding of the occupied, that the occupied ensure the security of the occupier? How common is this?
2: It is a bit confusing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh... The the way it's been depicted uh, and and as you've described, uh, but the territory of Gaza was taken by Israel in 1967 through an act of aggression. So the occupation was initiated through an act of aggression. So I think you can't talk simply about occupation and you have to talk about how it came about. And if it came about as it did here through aggression, that means that Israel has had an obligation to depart ever since June of 1967. So it's not supposed to depend on a negotiation. It's not supposed to depend on anything other than than the, uh, the aggressor leaving. <laughs> um, so it's really not the law of occupations that is critical on that score. I mean, the law of occupation does have rules for what Israel has to do and what it may not do while it is in occupation. But if it had no right to be there in the first place, then it had no right to be there in the
1: first place. Stevenson is.
3: But what makes Israel-Palestine a little more complicated is that while most um, invasions and occupations um, you know, the UN Security Council has basically said, get out, (laughs) Um, as with Iraq and and Kuwait and and some others. UN Security Council Resolution 242, while it reiterated the inadmissibility of expanding territory by force, um, basically uh, said that, uh, in addition, uh, there need to be security uh, guarantees from its neighbors. It's a so-called land for peace. And uh, this is the excuse Israel has had to hold on to the territories. But the fact is, is that every single Arab state has either already recognized Israel with security guarantees or has said they will recognize Israel with security guarantees as soon as they withdraw from the occupied territory and allow for a Palestinian state. In addition, the Palestine Authority, the recognized government of, of Palestine, the Palestine Liberation Organization, Fatah, which is the largest Palestinian party, the Palestine National Congress, President Abbas, they've all offered strict security guarantees in in return for Israel's withdrawal. Uh, But uh, Israel has refused to do so and has used the uh, excuse of the threat of Hamas, a minority armed faction, which uh, forcibly seized uh, the Gaza Strip in in 2007 as an excuse. But Netanyahu um, has reiterated uh, that there's no way he will allow for a Palestinian state at all and that Israelis have exclusive rights to the West Bank. And uh, so um, it's clear that Israel is in violation of two forty two and three thirty eight successor resolu- resolutions, what the United States used to say was the basis of for peace. But now they have sort of added these demands of the uh, Palestinians, such as they recognize Israel as an explicitly Jewish state, which um, they had not required for the Egyptians or the um, Jordanians or, or, or others to recognize. And, to my knowledge, I don't know any time in history that an a end of occupation was was a, on the requirement that one party recognize the ethnic or religious identity of the of the other. Let's contrast Western Sahara, uh, where, again, the U.S. also opposes uh, the act of self-determination, also opposes an end of the occupation. You know, the excuse we've been giving on Palestine uh, in terms of not allowing their freedom and for total Israeli withdrawal is that... Um, there are that the Palestinian leadership is not um, united, in addition to the Palestine authority. You have um, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, Popular Front, uh, and that you know, some of these groups engage in terrorism. Uh, some of these groups have not recognized Israel's right to exist, and none of them are particularly democratic. But when you look at uh, Western Sahara, people of Western Sahara are united in their recognition of Polisario as a representative. They may disagree with certain policies, but they see the Polisario formally known as the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic. That's a full member state of the African Union. It's been recognized by over 84 countries. that They recognize that as their legitimate uh, government. Uh, the Polisario has never questioned Morocco's right to exist. Uh, they have never engaged in terrorism. And they actually have democratic elections for their president and their parliament. And, and And the U.S. still still refuses to call for an end to the Moroccan occupation, which makes you wonder, even if the Palestinians got their act together, you know, would the U.S.? they be willing to, to, to uh, support end of the occupation. And so, this, I, the, but this the, so just to, to follow up on what John was talking about, the presumption, when you have a foreign belligerent occupation, is that it is the occupier that needs to make the necessary compromises for peace. And the UN, the reason the peace process has failed Israel Palestine is the United States has said, oh, the two sides need to work it out among themselves. And even if you assume that both Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arabs both have the right to uh, national self-determination, peace and security, it ignores the gross asymmetry in power between the occupier and the occupied. I mean, when Iraq invaded Kuwait, we didn't say, "Oh, you two have to work out among yourselves as to how much uh, uh, land uh, you know Iraq should give back," and you know all this kind of thing. You know, the, the international community said, "No, get out." And um, the United States actually led the world in doing that. I mean, there's debate whether we should have gone to war or not, but there's no question that Iraq was the aggressor, and, and it was Iraq's responsibility to end the occupation. But a similar position we've been taking with Russia and Ukraine. But when it comes to U.S. allies like Morocco and um, and Israel, we say, oh, you just have to negotiate with the people that you're oppressing and keeping down, and you are far, far far more powerful <laughs> over, and really have no leverage except international law which the United States is blocking the UN Security Council from enforcing.
1: And uh, John, we've been talking kind of broadly what I guess the international law of you know use post bellum, what ultimately would end the occupation, but we haven't actually addressed how the population is being treated under occupation. Are there specific obligations the occupier has? Is it just the way it's tied to human rights treaties or is there a certain... You know, body of law, where the, I mean, because obviously the occupier can't just target civilians and 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 indiscriminately bomb, et cetera. Those would be violations of the of the laws of war. Is that what applies here, or is there a different way to think about this?
2: Well, yes, there is a body of law that developed then beyond what I was mentioning earlier. the the 1907 treaty, that's in 1949. Uh, Geneva convention the fourth Geneva convention of 1949 which has uh, a chapter on uh, belligerent occupation and spells things out a little bit more than you had in the Hague regulations um uh collective punishment is prohibited uh for, for uh for one uh bringing in your own population to settle is 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 that's written down as a violation even though i mean it's implied in 1907 that that would be a violation but it's written down in the 1949 uh convention um the, the occupant um uh, you know at least if it is entitled to be there in the first place can use force to maintain the occupation in the situation of israel not even that is permissible because Israel came in through an act of aggression uh, and, and really has no right. The population has a right to, to throw them out. You know, If Canada comes in and, and controls California, the people of California can rise up against the, those nasty Canadians. I mean, I mean that's uh, it's simple. So it's really not the law of occupation that, that is, is the key here.
3: It's illegal to exploit the natural resources of uh, the occupied territory. This has been an issue, for example, in the Golan with its uh, rich water resources. Uh, and the, the, the big issue, of course, is Morocco's occupation of Western Sahara, which has some of the largest phosphate deposits and the um, um, largest fisheries in the world. And the European Court has thrown out a number of EU treaties with Morocco on on uh, on the uh, on, on fisheries and on on other uh, Free in free trade agreements in general, because Morocco refuses to distinguish between um, Morocco and the occupied territory. And the European Court said, no, you have to make a distinction because this is um, uh, this is uh, you know territory under a, a, a foreign military occupation. It's, an, it's a non self governing uh, territory. EU courts have also made distinctions between products um, you know developed in the uh, in the uh, is, 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 uh, illegal Israeli settlements, and you cannot say made in Israel. On this, so the um, you know the the, the um, so so of course to the deal with these kind of issues have been very very uh, you know, clear on this, and and um, I should mention again the U.S. government's common kind of outlier in this by condemning the uh, the uh, Europeans for making such uh, the, distinctions and, um, and 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 indeed uh, and uh, you know treating Israeli settlements as as for example as part of Israel and um, and Golan as part of Israel and uh, the Western Sahara as part of Morocco.
1: Last question, as we're nearing the end, and I'll ask both of you, but I'll ask John first. Is the international law clear that Israel needs to eventually, if not sooner rather than later, withdraw from these territories and a recognition of uh, independent Palestine, at least in the occupied territories?
2: Well, yes, except that the Security Council muddied things up in the resolution that Stephen referred to, uh, Resolution 242, of uh, by saying, uh, well, on the one hand, that annexation is unlawful, um, uh, but that the Arab states should accept Israel. And without drawing a clear connection between those two concepts as to whether Israel's obligation to withdraw uh, is uh, or to avoid annexation is dependent on what the Arab states do. To me, the law is much clearer than that. <laughs> they went in through an act of aggression on June 5. Uh, they have to get out on June 6. End of story.
1: Stephen, I'll give you the last word on that question. Yes. Well, I mean, certainly, uh, you
3: know, again, the right of self-determination is is, is paramount uh, in um, in international law. I mean, the the um, uh, Jordan's annexation of the West Bank after the um, uh, Israeli War of Independence, the Nakba back in 1948, was also questionable legality, as was uh, Egypt's uh, uh, administration of the Gaza Strip. And the broad international consensus has been that this is Palestinian territory, and they indeed should have their uh, their um, uh, have had a kind of self determination and. That while the United, uh, United States, for many years, rejected the idea of a Palestinian statehood, it wasn't until after Israel <laughs> expressed an openness to the idea in the 1990s that the U.S. started to, to take that uh, a position. But um, the, um, you know, the current Israeli government rejects that out of hand, and the U.S. position is, is that, um, you know, while uh, that, that they, will, they will cut off all ties to. Um, um, you know, the Palestine Authority. If even one cabinet member opposed Israel's right to exist, that uh, we are of course supporting Israel more than ever, despite the fact that the <laughs> opposes Palestine's right to exist, and our lip service for a two-state solution. We are basically preventing that from happening. You know, it makes it questionable whether uh, that the, the the Biden administration is sincere in that. But again, there's no question that both Palestine and Western Sahara have the right of self-determination. Uh, you know, every much as much as which is a uh, Algeria, when it was under French occupation, Kenya, when it was under British occupation, or or any kind of um, uh, comparable colonial situation. And it's a shame, quite frankly, here we are a good ways into the 21st century and and that this is even a debate.
1: And what makes this particularly salient is the day we're recording here, on Thursday the 18th, there were statements by uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu actually reiterating a position that there is no support for an eventual Palestinian statehood in Gaza, West Bank, or whatever, and though there's been a reluctance to talk about what happens at the end of this military operation, I actually think Israel's been pretty clear on it. and I also think international law is pretty clear on the judgment on what Israeli policy is. Our guests today have been John Quigley. Professor of Law Emeritus at Ohio State University, the author of numerous books, including The Statehood of Palestine, International Law in the Middle East Conflict, and The Six-Day War in Israeli Self-Defense, Questioning the Legal Basis for Preventative War. And Stephen Zunas, Professor of Politics and International Studies at the University of San Francisco, also numerous uh, publications, including Tinderbox, U.S. Middle East Policy and the Roots of Terrorism, and Western Sahara, War, Nationalism, and Conflict Irresolution, the latter co authored with Jacob Mundy. Thank you both very, very much for joining us and sharing your insights. Thank you.
0: When we come back, what are war crimes? How do they apply to state and non state actors? What does international law say about civilian protection amidst a war? And what does the law say about legal rights for non state actors and self determination? Stay with us. This is the Scholar Circle, ScholarCircle.org. I'm Maria Armudian. Civilian protection is a fundamental requirement in the prosecution of wars. Does the civilian suffering in Gaza violate the laws of war? And what legal rights do non-state actors have when seeking self-determination? Doug Becker explores.
1: I'm Doug Becker. Our panel today is Gabor Rona. Professor of the Practice at Cardozo Law School. He's the author of Is There a Way Out of the Non-International Armed Conflict Detention Dilemma? And State Responsibility to Respect, Protect, and Fulfill Human Rights Obligations in Cyberspace. And Jennifer Trahan, Clinical Professor and Director of the Concentration in International Law and Human Rights at NYU's Center for Global Affairs. She's published two digests on the case law of the ad hoc tribunals and is the author of Existing Legal Limits to the Use of a Veto in the Face of Atrocities, Crimes and International Justice and the International Criminal Court at a Critical Juncture. Thank you both very, very much for joining us on this particularly important issue as we've all been following, uh, the war, the violence, the, the killings, atrocities that have taken place in Israel-Palestine since October seventh. Gaboron, I'm going to start with you. I started with an introduction about jus ad bellum and jus in bello. What is the difference, and how are they typically applied in these sorts of cases?
4: First, Douglas, thank you so much for inviting me onto Scholar Circle. I, I really appreciate it. I, I think you summarized and characterized the difference between jus ad bellum and jus in bello accurately. That Use ad bellum is the aspect of international law that determines when states are allowed to use force in their international relations, while usin bello, which is the law of armed conflict, uh, determines what are the permissible means and methods when a state uses force in its international relations, or in fact, e- even domestically, in cases of, of armed conflict. The only thing I would add is that uh, this concept, use ad bellum, determining whether and why use of force is allowed, is summarized in the UN charter, which outlaws the aggressive use of force by states, uh, but recognizes uh, the traditional right of states to use force in self-defense then turning to use in Bello, which is the law of armed conflict. Um, people may generally be familiar with uh, the Geneva Conventions, which are the most widely ratified international treaties in the world. These are the laws that apply to both the conduct of hostilities when force occurs, and also the rules concerning the protection of persons who are outside of combat, like civilians, and prisoners of war. The irony about these two areas of law is simply that one um, tells us when force is allowed, when it isn't allowed, but the other regulates aspects of the use of force even when the initial decision to use force is unlawful. In other words, this second realm, use and bellow. Is all about regulating things that may, in fact, be unlawful in the first place.
1: And uh, Jennifer Trahan, let's take up you know these questions. Actually, let's start with the just at Bellum question about whether or not Israel is justified in the use of force. I mean, at one level, they were attacked, so the idea of you know using force in self-defense. But this is a little bit complicated, right? Because Palestine's not recognized as a state. So how does this apply in cases, you know, Russia invades Ukraine, Ukraine has the right to defend itself state to state. This isn't exactly the same, is it?
5: Right, exactly. Um, First, also, thanks for having me on. Um, The UN just charter says a state can use self-defense when it suffered an armed attack. And for many, many years, we read it must be an armed attack by the state. So that is obviously your easier scenario. Um, but the law on that, I think, has been evolving because, of course, 9-11 was an armed attack by a non-state actor, um, uh, al-Qaeda. And then um, ISIL attacks in Iraq have also been attacked attack by a non-state actor. So this is actually one of the questions where I think some people might answer your question differently. Um, I would think that um, there is the ability to respond to the attack of a non-state actor. But I think you know this is where the law is evolving and people can take different views. Um, that being said, even before we reach the conduct of war, even at the use ad bellum, the justness of going to war or responding. Um, your response has to be necessary and proportionate. So those are limiting factors already in responding to an armed attack. Um, and there's also some authority that responding to an armed attack is just repelling it from your territory and not go going further than that. So there are a lot of questions about what you can do in responding, but I think, um, you know, no one would disagree that once you are responding, there are a lot of laws of war that are, become applicable um, in terms of uh, largely distinction. For for instance, um, y- you could never target civilians or civilian objects. You can only target military objects or military objectives. And the laws of war sometimes use this... And- this kind of horrible eufem- euphemism of collateral damage. But that really means that some civilians around a military target, some civilian fatalities are permitted under the laws of war, but it's really not large scale, any large scale killing of civilians. It's a limited kind of radius around your military target that is permitted. Um, and there are a lot of other laws of war, but those are to just highlight a couple. Of Jennifer,
1: i want to follow this up because one of the real key challenges with all this, U.S. gets attacked on 9-11 by a non-state actor and responds by attacking a state actor. By knowledge in international relations, the whole notion of sovereignty as being territory and the idea of these attacks being driven by territory. But Israel's relationship to Gaza complicates this as well, correct? Because you have an armed attack that, I guess, ostensibly would be inside Israeli, I don't know if you call it sovereignty or occupation. I mean, Israel controls Gaza. How much does that complicate the question and that they're not attacking another country, another sovereign entity, unless they're implicitly recognizing Palestinian sovereignty? I guess my question is, what exactly is Israel's legal relationship with Gaza, and what kind of legal obligations do they have?
5: That's right. It, that certainly makes it it murky. I, I think I read a blog post that we could characterize this conflict in any one of eight different ways. So given this weird relationship, you're right. It It is very um, difficult. Um, you know, that said, there are certain kind of bedrock obligations that are going to pl- apply regardless. Um, and, you know, even um, if, um, you know, your adversary is violating the laws of war, Um, It it doesn't justify um, a a sophisticated military in, in doing so. So there are a lot of obligations that are going to apply regardless of how we classify the conflict. And of course, Hamas hasn't signed Geneva Conventions, for instance, but you're doing a lot of this through customary international law. And some of our bedrock principles are gonna apply through that route.
1: Which then, Gabor, a lot of the conversation has been the jus ad bellum that Israel may have and being able to defend itself against an attack. But certainly, critics of Israel have suggested we should ask the same jus ad bellum question about Hamas's attack. Was Hamas's attack justified, considering Israel is occupying Gaza and there's been a pretty long campaign to deny Palestinian sovereignty? So.
4: I think that the proper context for that question is the recognition of the international community and international law in the post-World War II era of the wisdom and utility of ending colonialism. And in connection with um, the struggles against colonialism, Uh, The UN General Assembly, for example, has recognized the right of people to self-determination. I said people. I should say peoples, not people, individually. Uh, In other words, ethnicities, nationalities um, have a right to self-determination. And in connection with the right to self-determination, and this conversation grew out of the kind of um, desirability of the end of colonialism era, uh, the the General Assembly has also recognized um, in cases where it's necessary the right to use force in order to uh, achieve the right of self-determination. The General Assembly has recognized it in resolutions uh, concerning the fight against apartheid in South Africa, and also more specifically, maybe more relevantly, even in connection uh, with the conflict, long-standing conflict now between Israel and Palestine. So just as Israel has a right to use force in self-defense, I think the majority view in international law is that Palestinian peoples have a right to use force uh, if necessary for the purpose of self-determination. Now, once again, though, a huge caveat um, and um, and I'm I'm just repeating what Jennifer said that just because there is a right to use force, whether it's by Israel or by Hamas, um, that doesn't mean anything goes. Once you've established such a right, you then have the overlay of the law of armed conflict, the limitations that Jennifer mentioned concerning um, the inviolability of of civilians and civilian objects, um, the application of various aspects of international human rights law that protect the right to life, that protect against arbitrary detention, prohibitions against torture, uh, many other limitations for which um, there are uh, mandatory criminal penalties um, so that there there is a fairly vibrant, um, if spotty enforcement mechanism for all of these limitations and prohibitions in spite of the fact that both Israel and Hamas may have a right to use force in order to achieve legitimate ends. So just as Israel has a right to use force in self-defense against legitimate military objectives um, of Hamas, Hamas has a right to use force for the purpose of vindicating the the right of self-determination against legitimate military objectives of, of Israel. And this is encapsulated in the law of armed conflict's principle of distinction. You can target military personnel, you can target military objectives, you cannot target civilians, you cannot target civilian objects. And you're listening to Scholar Circle, ScholarCircle.org.
1: I'm Doug Becker. On today's show, we're discussing the laws of war, the jus ad bellum and jus in bello uh, implications of the way the war is being fought between Israel and Palestine, between the Israelis and Hamas. Our guests today are Gabor Rona of Cardozo Law School and Jennifer Trahan of NYU's Center for Global Affairs. Jennifer, and kind of the ultimate jus ad bellum question then is, is Hamas guilty of committing the crime of aggression? They initiated this round of the war. We could talk about the nature of the conflict that's taken place over many, many years. But specifically in 2023, the Hamas attack, Hamas was responsible for this. Are they guilty of the crime of aggression?
5: So thanks for that question. We do have um, a crime of aggression defined, um, accepted by all state parties to the International Criminal Court. Um, It's in uh, Article 8bis of the Rome Statute. 8bis means they shoved it in after the original Article 8. It's between Articles 8 and 9. Um, So we do have this crime. However, if you look at it, um, it pretty clearly covers an armed attack by a state actor. So I have to say, I don't see the October 7 attack falling in that definition.
1: Gabor, I guess part of the question here is then, Does this call into question whether Hamas actually represents an international actor that's bound at all by any sort of legal obligations? And if the answer is no, then is the response to them also
4: bound? Fortunately for international peace and security, the answer is not no. The answer is a resounding yes. Hamas, by virtue of of representing uh, an entity that is not recognized as a state, for sovereignty purposes under international law, um, Hamas cannot commit an act of aggression as that term is understood by the UN charter. Um, and of course, that doesn't mean that everything that that they do is permissible. And, and, I, and we've, you know, we've said that several times already, but I think it's really important uh, to hammer home that the, the war crimes, crimes against humanity that, that have been committed Um, are exactly that. And Hamas has to answer to that. Those crimes have to be investigated, they have to be prosecuted. Um, That said, um, I agree that Hamas is not a state actor in the sense of representing a sovereign entity and and therefore cannot be guilty of a crime of aggression simply because of the definition of the crime aggression would, would exclude that kind of entity. Now that said, nothing about the lack of state status of Palestine, nothing about the fact that Hamas is seen as a terrorist organization would preclude them from being legally responsible under the Geneva Conventions, under international human rights law, for compliance with the laws of war, for compliance with human rights obligations, And when they fail to comply, then the international community that is all of the rest of us states are responsible for investigating and holding accountable people, not Hamas, not Israel, but people, individuals who have violated the laws of armed conflict, who have committed these crimes against humanity whether they occurred on the territory of Israel proper or in Gaza or in the West Bank, anywhere else. It is individuals who are individually criminally responsible under the laws of armed conflict, under human rights law, under international criminal law for these violations. Jennifer,
1: one military tactic that Israel has adopted uh, certainly has fallen under a great deal of criticism, potentially a a war crime has been the targeting of food and water and resources, energy, you know, gas resources. And I know that some states, I mean, the Saudis, for instance, attacking the capital city of Sana'a, trying to starve out the Houthis in, in Yemen, they have been criticized for human rights abuses because the humanitarian catastrophe. Israel seems to be mirroring that policy. So I guess, is that a, a war crime? And in what ways is it a war crime? And also... Can we imagine what could be a more legal and even possibly effective tactic?
5: Um, yes. Uh, starvation as a weapon of war is can be a war crime um, in both international armed conflict and non-international co- armed conflict. Um, you know, we have a statement by uh, Minister of Defense in Israel. I've ordered a complete siege on the Gaza Strip. There'll be no electricity, no fuel uh, no food. Everything is closed. Um, this, you know, sounds like intentionally um, blocking um, what people need to survive. Um, and and then there are also obligations that they're in rights to receive medical treatment, both whether we're under international armed conflict or non-international armed conflict, and obligations um, to facilitate humanitarian access. Um, so there's a horrific humanitarian crisis. Um, But in the face of this, there actually are some legal obligations to be alleviating this and certainly not causing it, intentionally causing it. We are potentially talking about war crimes analysis. Um, This was one of the recent changes to the International Criminal Court statute. And I think it was watching uh, siege warfare um, in Syria Um, and that we kind of woke up and realized, oh, look, siege warfare is a crime if committed in international armed conflict, but not if committed in non-international under the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. And that was a recent amendment to the International Criminal Court's Rome Statute. No, it's a war crime also, um, if committed in non-international armed conflict. Um, So yes, um, I I think um, it it is horrific. and you know the other thing i think we have to be very concerned about we talked a little bit about proportionality uh, of the response um and you know i discussed collateral damage which is kind of you know this this euphemism of a little bit of you know civilian uh, harm around a military object and you know i don't know that we're dealing with correct numbers but you know i we see estimates of 2000 hamas killed um, and 13,000 civilian fatalities. You know, and you ask, oh, it, oh is that collateral damage? And I, I think by no stretch of the word, is that acceptable collateral damage? Um, so already in the conduct of hostilities, I think it is way exceeded what is permissible under the laws of war. And then, you know, it would involve a very particular strike by strike analysis. However, the overall numbers jump out at you as as being rather alarming.
1: And Gabor, I know that Israel's response to accusations that the way they're fighting this war is going to disproportionately affect civilians was to tell Palestinians to flee northern Gaza and go to, to southern Gaza. But that in and of itself is potentially a war crime, isn't its is, Or at least it certainly it, it could be ethnic cleansing in that sense or, or demanding that civilians leave
4: because you're going to an attack. Is that a crime? So... This question has answers that completely run the gamut, the reason being that one of the obligations of an attacker is not only to distinguish between combatants and civilians, and not only to make sure that if you do attack a legitimate military objective, uh, you take steps to minimize civilian harm and you refrain entirely from an attack if it will cause disproportionate civilian harm. Uh, But as part of the obligation to minimize civilian harm, um, the obligation to warn in advance of an attack um, is part of the requirements of the law of armed conflict. That is where a warning is feasible. And warnings are certainly feasible um, in, in in most, if not all, of the attack situations that have have occurred in Gaza, Israel's position is um, it is not only permissible to tell Gazan uh, citizens to you know to move out of North Gaza, uh, but uh, when we do so, we are fulfilling an obligation under the laws of armed conflict to warn in uh, in advance of an attack. The alternative the alternate point of view is that the entirety of gaza and the entirety of northern gaza as well cannot be the subject of a legitimate attack therefore telling all of gazans to move out of northern gaza cannot be justified under the requirement of um, of warning and if that is correct then it is much easier to understand that warning as being consistent with impermissible, impermissible efforts to ethnically cleanse at least a part of Gazan territory. Um, it's hard for, for me without additional facts, not only as, about facts on the ground concerning each individual attack, but I also would need to know something about um, the private intentions of, of Israeli authorities in issuing these warnings. Now, there have been some public statements, um, some really troubling public statements by Israeli officials about, you know, wiping out all of Gaza, um, um, cleansing all of all of Gaza. Um, there have been statements in the Knesset, uh, not contemporary, but in the past, um, about um, not only sticking to the 1967 borders of Israel, but um, but of uh, you know pushing Gazans out um, into other um, neighboring states and for Israel to annex Gaza and the West Bank. These troubling statements all um, put into question the good faith of Israeli authorities in issuing these warnings. So on the one hand, um, you could construe these these warnings as, as not only permissible, but even required by the laws of armed conflict. On the other hand, if you understand that not all of Gaza can be a legitimate military objective, then you'd have to conclude that these warnings are not really efficient um, in connection with the obligation to warn. And that raises concerns about whether or not um, the motives of Israel in issuing these warnings um, are are not good faith. And Jennifer, also, with respect to the the warning and and the
1: call for people in North Gaza to flee to, to South Gaza, how much as well is the amount of time that was given, an actual infrastructure where there's actually some place for the population to go. There's a historical context to asking Palestinians to leave their homes in the middle of, of these conflicts.
5: Gabor suggested two different interpretations of the warnings, and I had taken the first one, um, maybe naively, but I had thought that this, this was Israel giving a warning that it was moving into northern Gaza and i had read it that way um you know and obviously there wasn't always the capability to go to southern gaza i mean there were people who could not flee individuals in hospitals it wasn't really a warning that people could always comply with and to go where and we've already talked about you know the the lack of food water other essentials um and the kind of humanitarian catastrophe and i think there their legal obligations uh, related to to causing that situation, obviously all of this is occurring um, in a very loaded, very historic context. But I think you know, on both sides, um, people would bring up arguments of context. Um, you know that the October Seven attack is is not a one off. That comes in you know this in this context, um, and this siege of Gaza comes in the context of historic sieges of Gaza and blockades. You know, this maybe illuminates how we view some of these things. I think if you're analyzing a particular uh, act and you're trying to characterize it as a war crime, crime against humanity, you're probably looking at, at just that act, but sometimes we have to figure out what was the intention. G- Gabor raised this uh, of our actors, and and uh, and you don't always get conclusive evidence. So sometimes you're looking at contextual factors to try to fa- figure out the intent. So I-, I think there's certainly a lot of context for all of this.
1: Our guests today have been Gabor. Rona. He's professor of the practice at Cardozo Law School and the author of Is There a Way Out of the Non-International Armed Conflict Detention Dilemma and State Responsibility to Respect, Protect, and Fulfill Human Rights Obligations in Cyberspace. And Jennifer Trahan, clinical professor and director of the Concentration in International Law and Human Rights at NYU Center for Global Affairs. She's published two digests on the case law of the ad hoc tribunals and is the author of of existing legal limits to the use of the veto in the face of atrocity, crimes and international justice, and the International Criminal Court at a critical juncture. Thank you both very, very much for joining us. This interview was recorded November
0: 2023. And that's it for today's program. Thank you for listening. The Scholar Circle is hosted by Doug Becker. Its managing producer is Ankina Agassian. Mehike Chechi is our assistant producer. Sad Dongre is our webmaster and assistant producer. Our archives are at ScholarCircle.org, and our podcasts are on Apple and Google Podcasts and iTunes. Please follow us on at ScholarCircle, or me, at Armudian, and join our Facebook page. I'm the founder, anchor, and occasional host, Maria Armudian.